Amen. So we have been talking about ecclesiology, which is from the Greek word ekklesia, which means what? Church or gathering or assembly or congregation. And uh, so we've been talking about ecclesiology uh, for the past few weeks. And, uh, and so last week we began uh, to talk about the subject of baptism. And Zach was here and he talked about kind of the history and the meaning of baptism. And then this week what we want to do is kind of extend that lesson and, uh, and talk about uh, the candidates for baptism, who should be baptized, and then how should baptism uh, be performed. And so that's what we want to uh, uh, talk about today. And so I want to go over part of our statement of faith again. It's in your, uh, in your notes there. And so we read this last week, but I think this particular uh, sentence is important because this kind of clarifies exactly what we're talking about today. And so in our statement of faith which is available online if you want to read the whole thing. It says, The ordinance of baptism is the immersion in water of a confessing believer into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So if I were to ask you, who should be baptized according to that statement of faith, how would you answer that? A confessing believer. And then if I were to ask, how should they be baptized in regards to mode or method, what would you say from that statement? In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then also in immersion. And, uh, and so that's what we're going to be talking about today. Who should be baptized? A confessing believer. How should they be baptized? They should be baptized by immersion in water. And so we want to begin by uh, answering that first question, who should be baptized? Now logically, obviously there are a number of ways that you could answer that question. You could say no one should be baptized, that it's just some sort of ar- archaic, obsolete uh, tradition of the early church or something like that, and so we shouldn't do it today. You could answer it and say everyone should be baptized. So you throw a party at your house, you invite over your neighbors, and you have some, uh, uh, some uh, neighbors who come from the faith tradition of Islam or some who are Hindu or whatever it might be, and as they're walking by the pool, you push them in and scream, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, and uh, obviously, no one practices these particular things. No one says that no one should be baptized. No one says that everyone should be baptized. When it comes to uh, Christian tradition, there have been two positions in the history of the church that uh, believers have held to. The first one is that only those who profess faith in Christ should be baptized. Only those who profess faith in Christ should be baptized. This is called believers or confessors' baptism. The technical name for it is credo-baptism, after the word creed, which is not uh, the uh, bad band from the 90s, but is, uh, in, somebody likes creed, and so sorry, we'll do church discipline later. And, uh, and so creed is from a, a Latin word that means I believe, or I confess, or I profess. And, uh, and so that is what credo-baptism is, only those who profess, who confess faith in Christ should be baptized. The second position is that uh, not only should you baptize those who profess faith, and so this second position would hold that you do baptize those who profess faith, but not only should you baptize those who profess faith in Christ, but also the infant children of believers. The infant children of believers. This is called paedobaptism from the Greek word for infant or child, which is paidon. And, uh, and so given that we just read from our statement of faith that baptism is, from, uh, is for a confessing believer, uh, it should be obvious that we are credo-baptistic in our theology here at, uh, at the Parkway uh, Church. That said, we talked about this a little bit last week, we've talked about this before, most of our theological heroes are paedo-baptists. If you were putting together kind of all-star teams of credo-baptists versus paedo-baptists, you, in this room, whether you've studied this issue or not, could probably name a lot of the bench players uh, for the Pado baptists and probably couldn't even get the starting five when it comes to credo-baptists. And so paedo-baptism reads like a, a who's who of church history. Um, uh, guys like uh, Augustine and Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and uh, Jonathan Edwards and John Owen, modern guys like J.I. Packer and R.C. Sproul and Tim Keller, uh, and on and on we could go. From about the 4th century to about the 16th century, it was almost the only practice within the, uh, the church. This was almost the only position within the church. So paedobaptism obviously has a lot of historical support behind it, but we don't judge a doctrine by how many people have actually held that doctrine. Instead, we judge a doctrine by how well it holds up to biblical scrutiny. 
So, uh, so if we're going to go against the flow of church history in regards to paedo-baptism, we have to have good and compelling reasons to do so. I think we do have good and compelling reasons. And so why is it that we uh, go against that flow, and why is it that we hold to a credo-baptistic uh, position? Well, imagine kind of you're playing a sport, right? So if you've ever played a sport, you've ever seen a sport, you know what a sport is, uh, oftentimes you will have offense and defense. And so some teams uh, kind of get by on just having this incredible offense. Some teams have a, an, an incredible defense the great teams kind of have a combination, combination of both. And so what we want to do today is give a little bit of offense in regards to kind of uh, trying to demonstrate the uh, importance of what credo-baptism stands for. But then also we're going to play a little bit of defense, and we're going to show a little bit of some of the uh, inherent weaknesses of the paedo-baptism uh, position. And so hopefully we're going to accomplish both, showing the strengths for credo-baptism uh, credo and then also the weaknesses of paedo-baptism. But first, before we get into that, I want to give a few different uh, sort of disclaimers. So three things that you need to know in particular about uh, paedo-baptism and credo-baptism and this whole discussion. The first thing that you need to know is that uh, there are various forms of paedo-baptism. Various forms of paedo-baptism. So not all paedo-baptists would agree on all of the, uh, the various aspects of it. All agree on two things. One, that infants should be baptized, and two, that to some degree the, the faith of the parents uh, is important, that, uh, that it somehow involves the faith and the promise of the parents to raise their infants, uh, their children in the faith. Those are the only two things that all paedobaptists uh, agree on. Beyond that, there are tons of discrepancies and variances between the various uh, traditions. So if you're a Roman Catholic, you believe that uh, the baptism of your infant is going to regenerate them and to some degree is going to justify them. Now, if you're a Lutheran, though, you uh, absolutely do not believe that uh, baptism is going to justify, but you would agree with your Roman Catholic uh, friend that uh, it regenerates. Uh, if you're an Anglican, you're kind of a mixed bag. It depends on your particular tr tradition. Some might hold that it regenerates, some don't. If you're Presbyterian or from a Reformed tradition, then you're going to say absolutely it does not uh, regenerate and it does not uh, justify. And so as you can see, Paedobaptists themselves don't agree on the meaning of baptism or uh, what it does. So that's the first thing that you need to know is that uh, there are various forms of paedobaptism. They don't all agree on the meaning of baptism or what it does. The second thing you need to know is that this is an in-house debate, that this isn't an issue of heresy. Presbyterians, for example, are our brothers and sisters in Christ. They aren't guilty of this sort of high-handed sin. Uh, I disagree with their position, and thus I think that they are in sin uh, but it's unintentional sin. By the way, most consistent Presbyterians would also then turn that around on me. They would say that I am guilty of a sin, but they would also say that it's not a high-handed, intentional sort of sin. They would also call me uh, a brother in, uh, in Christ. There's no real way around that. There's no real way around that implication. If the Bible commands the baptism of infants then we, as a, in our Baptistic sort of tradition, we are in sin if we don't baptize our infant children. On the other hand, if the Bible is going to command that you should baptize confessing believers, then paedobaptists are in sin if they do not uh, do that. So there's no real way of getting around the idea that this does involve sin, but it's also not this high-handed her uh, heresy or something uh, like that. There's no real alternative to the implication that paedobaptists think that credo-baptists are in sin and vice versa. But here's what I want you to know. It's not like debating the cults over something like the Trinity. In fact, it's not even like debating Roman Catholics over something like justification by, uh, by faith. This is a third-order doctrine. That doesn't mean that it's not important, but it does mean that it isn't essential and that we should be charitable when it comes to discussions uh, such as this. By the way, the goal for our lesson today and the goal in our own hearts is not uh, that we are just intending to critique paedobaptists. That's not the goal. Uh, the goal is not to critique paedobaptism. The goal is, uh, the point of this lesson is to equip us as a body to think biblically about this topic so that we might be as faithful as possible. 
That's the goal, that Jesus commands his people to be baptized. And so in order for us to be obedient to that command, we have to understand what is it that he means by that command. We need to understand what this means. So we can't just throw up our hands and say, who cares? Does it really matter if we baptize our infants or not? Well, yes, it really matters. Why? Because Jesus expects us to do something, and we want to be faithful to what he has commanded. It's definitely possible to be too divisive on this. In fact, if you look through church history, you'll find that, uh, that people have been put to death for their views on baptism. That's certainly going way too far. But I think in our particular culture, our danger is in swinging the pendulum to the other end and saying, because some people have been too divisive, because some people have been uh, uh, maybe taken this too far, that therefore we just need to treat it like it doesn't matter at uh, all. That, uh, that there's uh, all views are equally valid, that there's no absolute truth, that we can't know what's biblical and right, that no views are better than others. Uh, we talked about in, uh, in the book of Romans a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the fact that that might seem humble, it might really, really seem humble to say that theology or doctrine isn't that important, that it doesn't really matter, whatever it might be. But we saw uh, from Romans 16 that that is actually the exact opposite of what the Bible says. Um, that it's not humble, it's terribly arrogant to hold uh, that uh, position. And so we need to avoid both ends of the spectrum that would treat uh, paedo-baptists as if they are heretics, as if they are necessarily unbelievers. But also we need to avoid the other end of the spectrum that would say that this is not important and that we all just need to get along and, uh, and not talk about these sorts of, uh, of things. Because if they are actually wrong on this point, it does affect their sanctification uh, to the detriment of their own joy. The last thing I want to say is that these positions are mutually exclusive. I have some buddies who are in churches that try to do both. They try to be kind of credo-baptist and paedo-baptist. Uh, that's the one position that I think you cannot hold. So you can walk away from this, and you could be a paedo-baptist, and you could be theologically wrong, but you could at least be logically consistent. The one position you can't hold logically is to say that we're going to be both paedo-baptist and credo-baptist, because that would require uh, a logical contradiction. One side says that uh, unbelieving infants of believing parents should, indeed must, be baptized. The other side says that they must not. So they are mutually exclusive. You have to kind of choose one or the other. Now, in order for us to really kind of critique an argument, uh, it's important that we understand that argument. Unfortunately, as we talked about, the views, the various views of, uh, of different types of paedobaptists differ. And so Catholics and Lutherans and Methodists and Anglicans and Presbyterians all uh, are so vastly different in regards to what they believe, uh, not only about baptism, but other things. So we don't have time to really explain each individual view that would be uh, important. But I want to give you a summary of Reformed or Presbyterian paedobaptism for a couple of reasons. First, because other than this, and maybe when it comes to church governance, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, other than those two things, they really align with us very closely. So we are very close, uh, closely aligned with our Reformed and Presbyterian brothers and sisters, with the exception of baptism and, uh, and church governance. The other reason that I just want to concentrate on these two for today is because if you were to listen to our teachings on regeneration and justification, and Zach's teaching last week on uh, the, the meaning and history of baptism, then a lot of those other sort of uh, views of baptism, of paedobaptism, uh, would be answered. And so the view that it regenerates, the view that it justifies, or whatever uh, it, might, uh, it might be. And so uh, my point is that the main points of our critique today would work for any of the forms of paedobaptism, but if you were talking in particular to a Lutheran or to a Catholic or to an Anglican or to an Episcopalian or something like that, you would probably want to bring out a little different uh, nuance. So what do Reformed paedobaptists, such as Presbyterians, uh, the Reformed Church, what do they believe about baptism? Well, there are four points that they believe, and so you'll see these in, uh, in your notes. The first one, infants were circumcised in the Old Covenant. With that, we would give a hearty agreement. Yes, that's just a uh, historical fact. Infants were circumcised in the Old Covenant. The second one, baptism is the sign of the New Covenant, as circumcision was the sign of the Old. Again, yes. The third, there is essential continuity between the Old and New Covenants. The fourth view, therefore, 
we should baptize infants in the new covenant. So you can see kind of they give this logical syllogism uh, here. If you're a fan of logic, you probably can spot the error in, uh, in this thinking. Points one and two are absolutely undeniable. Infants were circumcised in the old covenant. Baptism is the sign of the new covenant as circumcision was the sign of the old. But number three in particular is really imprecise. And so number four doesn't really flow from it. Uh, imagine that you have a, uh, a chain. Well, that chain is only as strong as each individual link. And because number three in this syllogism is not strong, therefore the argument for pedobaptism is going to be pulled uh, apart. We gave a really substantive critique against this Reformed Presbyterian view of pedobaptism uh, last year, almost a year ago to the day. I think it was May 20th of 2018. It was a lesson called The Covenantal Sign of Baptism, which deals explicitly with many of the proof texts for pedobaptism. And, uh, and so if you really, 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 really want to understand credo-baptism and pedobaptism and why it is that we uh, hold to credo-baptism, let me encourage you uh, to go back, listen to that audio, listen to Zach's teaching from, uh, from last week, and then also listen to this lesson that you're currently listening to because they are intended to be kind of a triumvirate. They're intended to kind of all go together to really defend uh, this position. And, uh, and so today, we'll just have time for kind of a brief overview for why it is that we find credo-baptism to be compelling and why pedo-baptism is, uh, is not. In other words, why we should only baptize believing um, uh, those who make a profession of faith and not our unbelieving, unconfessing infants. So let me give you a few reasons that we hold to credo-baptism. The first one is because faith, repentance, and baptism are used somewhat interchangeably throughout Scripture, showing that they are intended to be tethered together. Faith, repentance, and baptism are used somewhat interchangeably, showing that they are intended to be tethered together. So sometimes if you're reading in Scripture, you might, say, uh, you might see that the, the uh, apostolic command is to repent and be baptized. Sometimes it'll say, believe and repent. Sometimes it will say, uh, believe and be baptized. Sometimes it'll only give one of those. That doesn't mean that some people need to repent, and some people need to believe, and some people need to be baptized, and some people need two out of the three. No, everyone needs all three of the three. It's just sometimes they're using one to stand for all. They're kind of a package deal. There's no faith without repentance. There's no repentance without faith, and there's no true baptism without faith and repentance. Think about it like this. In the book of James, it talks about faith without works is dead. So if you have faith that doesn't actually have repentance, James would say that's not true faith. Likewise, if you have baptism without faith and repentance, that's not real baptism. That's something else. That's just sprinkling. That's just immersion. That's just pouring. That's just something else. Baptism without faith and repentance isn't true baptism in the biblical way. It's like wearing a wedding ring when you're neither engaged nor married, nor have you ever been married. It doesn't really have any sort of meaning uh, then. It's kind of the off chance that you might get married and someday, so I'm wearing this uh, wedding ring, which is kind of uh, weird. So let's, uh, let's look in, uh, let's start in the book of Acts. Throughout the book of Acts, you'll see that everyone who is baptized is said to have believed or to repented or to have received the Word or to have received the Spirit or something like that. So I'm just going to give a couple of examples. You could literally go through the entire book of Acts and look at every single baptism, and you will see something similar to this pattern that we're going to see here in just these few verses. Acts 2.41, so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Acts 8.12, but the, when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Acts 10.47, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? In other words, if they hadn't received the Spirit, then we would withhold baptism. But because God has not withheld His Spirit, we're not going to withhold uh, baptism and so forth. Again, you could do that with every single passage in the book of Acts that talks about someone being 
baptized. Well, what about outside the book of Acts? Look at Galatians 3.27 there in your notes. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. To be baptized assumes that you are united to Christ. And notice the formula here. As many of you as were baptized. In other words, the assumption is that all who were baptized have, uh, have done so, have put on Christ. Not some. It doesn't say, for some of you who were baptized have put on Christ. It doesn't say most. Most of you who were baptized have put on Christ. It says, as many as were baptized have also put on Christ. All. You're going to see that same language of all in Romans 6, 3 through 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So again, to be baptized assumes this idea of union with Christ. It assumes death to life. It assumes life in the Spirit. Uh, I'm sorry, death to sin. It assumes life in the Spirit. And notice that it says that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have experienced this. Again, not some, uh, but all. Water baptism is intended as this, uh, this symbol of this spiritual baptism that you have experienced into Christ through faith and through regeneration. So you shouldn't do one where the other is lacking. If you haven't experienced the reality of being united to Christ, if you've experienced the reality of spirit baptism, which isn't uh, this charismatic sort of thing that happens years after you're saved, spirit baptism in the book of Acts is just simply when you receive the Spirit, which is when you are born again and when you exercise faith. So if that hasn't happened, then neither should baptism. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We talked about this a little bit last week, that baptism is a metonymy. Anybody remember what a metonymy is? Yeah, White House. The White House is an example of a a metonymy. And so if if, uh, you're, you're listening to the news and it says the White House said today, well, obviously the building doesn't speak, right? Or if you're in your office and someone says, hey, the suits are coming down. Right? It doesn't mean that some sort of you know, disembodied suit is going to walk down the hall. It means corporate or the CEO or something uh, like that. So that's what a metonymy uh, is. It's when you use one word uh, as a substitute for some sort of larger idea, a related sort of idea. So baptism is a metonymy. What's it a metonymy for? It's a metonymy for faith and repentance and salvation and all that that implies. That's what an appeal to God for a good conscience means. Notice that phrase there, not as a removal of dirt from the body. It's not the water itself that, that saves you. Baptism itself doesn't save you. What, what baptism stands for is what saves you. And he clarifies that, an appeal to God for a good conscience. That appeal to God is uh, what faith is. So baptism is this physical sign of the spiritual inward reality of faith and, uh, and repentance. And so why would we give the symbol when the reality isn't present. And that's what paedo-baptism does. It gives the symbol, even though what it symbolizes hasn't actually taken effect yet. Look at Colossians 2, 14, uh, 11 through 14. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So this is a really big one for paedo-baptists because here you have this clear correlation between circumcision and baptism, which is part of their syllogism that we talked about earlier. So it seems, at least on the surface, to play into the idea that baptism has merely replaced circumcision. Baptism in this passage is like circumcision. And so a paedo-baptist would take this and say, so therefore, baptism has replaced circumcision. But notice a few things here. Notice what type of circumcision it's talking about. It says a circumcision made without hands. In the Old Testament, if you're reading the Old Testament, the Old Testament is going to talk about two different types of, of, uh, of circumcision, right? You have circumcision of the flesh, and then you have circumcision of the heart. 
If you're a Jewish man, you had circumcised flesh, but not every Jew, whether male, male or female, had a circumcised heart. That's obvious, right? The kingdom is taken away into exile because they don't have circumcised hearts, because they're spiritually faithful, faithless, uh, and so forth. And so the prophets pointed to the day, though, when all of God's people would have circumcised hearts. What's interesting is that this passage isn't necessarily comparing physical circumcision to baptism. It's comparing spiritual circumcision to baptism. It's not saying baptism is like the circumcision of the flesh. It's saying that baptism is like the circumcision of the heart. So that actually kind of disproves rather than proves the paedo-baptist position because it means that we should only baptize those with circumcised hearts. We should only baptize those who have been born again. We've only baptized those who have, uh, who have received new uh, hearts. Second, notice in the passage all the references to faith, that baptism is connected to faith. You were raised with Christ through faith. Again, this is an argument against the paedo-baptist uh, position. And third, notice all the other things associated with this in the text. Uh, so, baptism is associated with death to sin, life in Christ, forgiveness of sins, and so forth. So, that's the first reason to argue against credo-baptism because the Bible describes and explicitly states and implies and assumes that baptism is connected to faith and repentance. So baptizing infants without faith or repentance would go against the entire thrust of the New Testament evidence when it comes to baptism. That's the first, that's the primary reason. The second reasons would really be more in, uh, in keeping with the critique of the Reformed or Presbyterian view of, uh, of baptism. So I want to, uh, want to give them uh, briefly. Again, if you're talking to someone who's Lutheran or Anglican or Roman Catholic or something, you'd probably uh, bring out some different nuances. But uh, this is, uh, I think, important when it comes to those that are most closely aligned with us. The second uh, critique or reason that we can say that credo-baptism is the biblical view is because the nature of the covenants have uh, changed. This is really huge. The reason that most uh, Protestant uh, paedo-baptists practice paedo-baptism is because they have this view that the new covenant is this extension of the Abrahamic covenant, that the new covenant is an extension of the Abrahamic covenant. And since infants were circumcised in the old, then surely infants should be baptized in the new now, everyone believes that there's some degree of discontinuity between uh, the, the covenants. Uh, so there's no tradition that just baptizes infant boys eight days old. Even though you only circumcised eight-day-old boys in, uh, in the Abrahamic covenant, there's no view that uh, just baptizes eight-day-old boys. Why not? Because they would say there's a degree of discontinuity that whereas you only circumcised boys in the old covenant, uh, now in the New Covenant, that uh, you should baptize both boys and, uh, and girls. So everyone says that there's some degree of discontinuity, but I think the Bible would point to a, uh, even more discontinuity than uh, Paedo-Baptists uh, would allow. So I want to look at one particular passage of Scripture. Again, we talked about this in particular last year, so if you want more on this argument, then I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that. But look at Jeremiah 31. 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So notice that Jeremiah explicitly states how, not only that the, covenant, uh, the, 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 that the new covenant would be different, but how it would be different. He says it will not be like the previous covenants. In what ways? Well, for example, he says that God will put his law on the hearts of his people. Was that true of every Israelite? Did every Israelite have a circumcised heart? No, absolutely not. It says that God will forgive their sins. Was that true of every Israelite? Was every single Israelite forgiven of their sins? No, absolutely 
not, and so forth. So you can go down that list and see all of these things. That is how Jeremiah says that the new covenant will be different from the Abrahamic covenant. And so whenever we read that syllogism earlier where it said uh, this is what Reformed or Presbyterian Pedobaptists believe, one of their things is there's essential continuity between the old covenants and the new covenant. And what we see here is there is continuity, but there's also discontinuity. Jeremiah says it's not going to be like it, discontinuity. And the way it's not going to be like it is that Israel was intentionally a mixed community. There were believers and unbelievers. There were physical Israel, that's this larger sort of uh, uh, circle, and then within that circle there was spiritual Israel. There were some who actually had circumcised hearts. And uh, so it was an intentionally mixed community. There were some who truly knew and loved and served Yahweh, and there were others who did not. But here's what's interesting. You were circumcised regardless. You were circumcised in the flesh regardless, and you were considered an Israelite regardless. Regardless of whether or not you had a circumcised heart, you were still considered an Israelite. You were still considered a part of the covenant community. You were still considered a part of the nation. But that's not true for the church. You could be an unbelieving Israelite. Does it make any sense whatsoever to talk about an unbelieving Christian? No, of course not. It makes no sense, therefore, to baptize unbelievers. Let me, uh, uh, let me summarize this because, again, I think this is really uh, important. The Reformed Pado-Baptist position hangs almost entirely on saying that the church is just like Israel in regards to being a mixed community of believers and unbelievers. So if you are a Presbyterian, then you believe that the church should intentionally have both those who are believers and those who are unbelievers. Whereas we would say that the church should be composed only of those who are uh, believers. We've just read that the Bible explicitly states that in this sense, the church is unlike Israel. The church is not to be a mixed community. And if the church should not be a mixed community like Israel, then the main argument for Reformed paedobaptism uh, is rendered irrelevant. Now, does that mean that every member of every Christian church is actually a believer? No, it doesn't mean that. Of course not. There are wolves in sheep's clothing and those kinds of things, but the point is that they are wearing sheep's clothing, right? And, uh, and so there's a difference between thinking someone is a sheep and being deceived and getting it wrong, so you accidentally let them join the church, and knowing someone isn't a sheep and yet uh, letting them in anyway. I gave this analogy uh, a while back. Suppose that you bake me a cake, and it's really great. And I try to figure out what's in that cake. And, uh, and so I don't have a very refined taste buds. But, uh, but imagine that I do, and so I'm just trying to kind of uh, parse it out. And, uh, and so I'm trying to guess all the ingredients. And so, you know, I guess, you know, sugar and vanilla and eggs and flour and all these different things that you put in there, a little bit of cinnamon. And as I'm eating the cake, I also, I find a hair. And, uh, and so that's, that's gross, right? And do I then assume that your recipe that was handed down from your grandmother or your great-grandmother includes hair? Is that my assumption? No. What do I think? There's a mistake that's made, right? What happens in paedobaptism is they kind of say, because we might get a few hairs in the church, we might as well just add them intentionally. Which is, uh, which is absurd. And, uh, and so that's the second reason. The nature of the covenants have changed. The, the Scripture explicitly says that Israel and the church are dissimilar when it comes to this. That, that Israel was a mixed community, that the church should be composed of only those who actually believe uh, and love and trust uh, the Lord. The third reason is because what baptism symbolizes is only true for believers. This is different from circumcision again. What did circumcision uh, symbolize? It didn't symbolize that you were saved because you were circumcised whether you were saved. It didn't symbolize forgiveness because you were circumcised whether you were forgiven. It marked off an ethnic people and it pointed forward to a future offspring. That's why, not to be too crude, but it was the male genital uh, male genitalia that was circumcised. God could have just simply had Israel have like mullets or something like that. But instead, he pointed to something that has something to do with offspring in order to point to the fact that this is what circumcision is going to, uh, to symbolize. It's going to symbolize the fact that one day there will be an offspring who is going to come, and in that day, the hearts of God's people will be 
circumcised. What in, what's interesting about this is, the, uh, is that the faith of the individual Israelite didn't really matter as to the meaning of the sign. Whether you loved and trusted and followed Yahweh or not, the, st- the sign still meant something. It still marked you off ethnically, and it still pointed forward to the fact that a Messiah was coming. That's true whether you believe it or not, right? God's plans are not thwarted by the unbelief or the, the, the faithlessness of Israel. So whether every single Israelite believed or not, God was still uh, accomplishing His purposes. Whether you believed in God or not, a Messiah was still coming. But what does baptism symbolize? That you've died, that you're forgiven, that you've been raised to life, that you'll be resurrected, that you're reconciled to God. Now, is that true for you if you've been baptized but you don't believe? Absolutely not. So, the, 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 the signal itself loses all of its meanings. In other words, it made sense to circumcise Jewish infants whether they believed or not, because the sign didn't symbolize that they were forgiven or saved necessarily. But it makes no sense to baptize infants because that's exactly what baptism symbolizes. Think of it like this. You were an Israelite regardless of your personal faith. The child of a Jew is a Jew regardless of their faith. The child of a Christian is only a Christian if he trusts Christ. So that's who should be baptized, those who profess faith in Christ. If you want to know thoughts on household baptisms or what does Acts 2 mean when it says that the promise is for you and for your children or 1 Corinthians 7 when it talks about uh, unbelieving uh, the uh, the children of an unbelieving parent and a believing parent are made holy all those kinds of things you can go back and listen to that audio or text it in and we'll answer it in Q&A but let's move on how should a person be baptized there's three traditional ways of answering that question we call these modes or methods of baptism. So if you ever hear that uh, phrase or expression, mode or method of baptism, it's pointing to one of these three traditional ways. The first one, the technical name is aspersion. We might know it as just sprinkling. The second one is effusion. We might know it as, uh, as pouring. The third one is uh, immersion, which obviously means to immerse or to plunge or dip or something like that. So aspersion, effusion, immersion, sprinkling, pouring, uh, or, um, or immersing, which is best, which is most biblical. Obviously, from our statement of faith, we believe uh, that immersion is best for a few reasons. The first one, because the Greek word baptizo, the Greek word baptizo literally means to plunge, to submerge, or to immerse. So I want to I talk for, for a second about the, uh, the difference between translation and transliteration. To translate a word means that you are taking that word and you're giving the meaning in, uh, in another language. In transliteration, you're not actually translating what the word means. You're just simply trying to reproduce those sounds in another language. For, for instance, Christ. The word Christ is just a transliteration of the Greek Christos. Right? You can see how they're, they're similar sounds, Christ and Christos. Messiah is the transliteration of the Hebrew Mashiach. But neither of those actually translate the word. What do, what, do those most, what do both of those words actually mean? Anybody know? Anointed. That's what Christ means. That's what uh, Mashiach or Messiah means. So if you wanted to uh, translate it, then instead of reading Jesus Christ, you would re- read Jesus the anointed. Or in the, the meaning of that, to anoint is to king. So it would be King Jesus or something uh, like that. Uh, neither of those are actually translations. Likewise with the word angel. It's from uh, Angelos, which means uh, messenger or apostle, one who is sent, or deacon, diakonos, one who serves. These are all transliterations. The reason this is important is because baptism, the word baptism, isn't a translation of the text. It's a transliteration of the Greek word baptizo. But what does the word actually mean? It actually means to immerse or to plunge or to dip. Let me give you a few examples uh, of, uh, of the usage. In the, uh, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, there's a story in 2 Kings chapter 5 of, uh, of a guy named Naaman who was a uh, leper, and he comes to Israel, and he goes and, uh, and speaks to Elijah and says, uh, you know, I need uh, to be healed of my leprosy, and, and he is told to go and to baptize himself seven times in the Jordan. And, uh, and so the idea there is to dip himself, to immerse himself, to plunge himself under the water seven times in, uh, in the Jordan. This word was also used, baptizo was also used of dyeing fabri- fabrics. 
you baptize a white dar- uh, garment into red dye. Right? Anyone who has ever tried to dye something knows you don't sprinkle the dye on it. You don't pour the dye on it. You take the thing that you want dyed and you immerse it. You plunge it under the water. That's what baptism should uh, symbolize. When that white garment goes into the red dye, it comes up and it takes on the property of the dye. Likewise, when you are baptized, you're immersed into the name of Christ. You're raised up taking on properties of Christ. You're no longer the same as when you went in. The, the word baptizo was also used of people drowning or ship sinking, right? If you pour water on a boat, is it going to sink? No. If you pour water on somebody, are they going to drown? If you're like waterboarding them or something? But no, in general, no. So if someone is going to drown, if a ship is going to sink, it's going to be baptized. What does that mean? It means to be submerged. It means to be immersed under the water. So when we think of the word baptism, we view it through 2,000 years of varying viewpoints. We might think when we read the word baptism, we might think of sprinkling because we've seen it practiced like that. We might think of pouring or we might think of immersing because the use of the word has kind of taken on all of these different connotations. But if you were a a, a first century inhabitant, you wouldn't think at all of sprinkling or pouring. When you heard about this guy named John the Baptist, he would be in your mind John the Dipper, John the Immerser, when you read uh, or when you heard the Great Commission from Matthew 28, it would say, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, nations, immersing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But instead, we read the word baptism, and so we get confused because it's, it's kind of become ambiguous over the various millennia. So why didn't early English translators actually translate the word? Why did they instead go for a transliteration? Why do they just seek to reproduce the sound, baptizo, in the English word baptism, instead of actually translating it and writing immersion? Because all the early translators of Scripture were what? Paedo-Baptists. And uh, and this would have been, not only would it have caused a great degree of social unrest, but it also would have been seen as seditious. Because in a lot of these contexts, there was an overlap between church and state. And, uh, and so it would have been seen as an act of treason for them to all of a sudden start talking about baptism as if it meant uh, immersion. So there's one objection to this idea that, uh, that baptism only means uh, immersion, and that is that sometimes the word just simply means to clean. And so you might think, well, I mean, to clean something, you can take a bath, you can take a shower. But think about this from a first century perspective. They don't have showers. They don't have running uh, faucets in their house. If you wanted to clean something from the perspective of the first century, what did you do? You immersed it. You dipped it down into uh, water. And, uh, and so even in the context where it means to clean, how does it mean to clean? It means to clean by immersion. So even when the word refers to washing, it means to wash by immersion, by dipping, by plunging. So that's the first reason. That's the meaning of the word. A second reason The representation of union in Christ's death and resurrection is best expressed through immersion. I'm not going to read these passages, but you'll see Colossians 2.12 and Romans 6.3-4. We've already read those. Um, You see that sort of imagery there. In other words, baptism is a picture. It's more than a picture, but it's a picture nonetheless. A picture of what? Of Christ's death and resurrection. Of our own dying to sin and being raised to new life. Now, does sprinkling or pouring remind you of that? Does it symbolize that? Does it picture that? Does it bring forth that sort of imagery to your mind? Of course not. It's Mother's Day, right? So uh, uh, how many of you have ever received like a picture from your kid and they hand you the picture and you look at that picture and you said, that's beautiful. And then what do you say? What is it? Right? Because whatever it is, you can't tell. They say it's a heart. Now, you know, what does it actually mean? Don't give me the, like the, the, the sort of emotional answer. I see love and innocence or something like that. No, you see scribbles. That's all you see, right? So you ask the kid and you said, what is it? And they say it's a heart or it's a tree or it's a dog or that's mommy and that's daddy or whatever it, uh, it might uh, be. If the kid doesn't tell you what it is, how would you ever know? Likewise, with sprinkling and with pouring. If someone doesn't actually, if someone were to actually tell you This means death to sin and life in Christ. How in the world would you ever see that from sprinkling and pouring? But with baptism by immersion, you actually see that as part of the liturgy. Like whether you actually understand that theologically or not, that imagery of being lowered into something and raised up out of something is very 
uh, clear. So whether you're buried below or above the ground, the, the symbolism of baptism, uh, a burial is still that of being placed under something, and a resurrection is being raised up out of something. That's what immersion symbolizes. And then third, the surrounding context of baptism in Scripture suggests that baptism uh, is always by immersion. You can see in Matthew 3.16 that it says that He went up from the water, uh, Mark 1, 5, uh, and 10, that He was in the River Jordan and He came up out of the water. 1 John 3, that John was baptized, or John 3, John was baptizing because water was plentiful there. You don't need plentiful water if you're just sprinkling or pouring or something uh, like that. You just kind of need a bucket. And then Acts 8, 38 through 39, um, the, uh, Philip is preaching to the Ethiopian eunuch. He believes the gospel, and, uh, and as a result, uh, he says, uh, look, there's water. What prevents me from being baptized? Now, he wouldn't have needed to seen water if baptism was best done just simply, or even acceptably done, just simply by sprinkling or pouring or something like that. This was a, a caravan that's traveling from, uh, from Jerusalem to Ethiopia. It's obvious they have some water on board. They simply could have poured, uh, but instead, uh, they wait until they see some water, and then they come up out of the water and go down into the water and, uh, and all of those sorts of things. So, for all these reasons and others, uh, I think the best, the biblical mode of baptism is immersion. That said, just for the sake of clarity, as, uh, as Zach uh, begins to make his way forward, I want to uh, give a couple of exceptions. So, lest you think that we're being too legalistic, we mentioned a couple of these uh, last week. We know a guy who does prison ministry, and, uh, and he does prison ministry on death row. And a couple of times he's had someone come to faith, and so he'll just simply have them take a, a bottle of water and, uh, and maybe even pour it on their own head, uh, or maybe have another believer there who's on death row with them pour it on their head because they don't have hot tubs, they don't have swimming pools, they don't have baths or whatever uh, it might be. So that would be an acceptable uh, exception. Uh, or someone's on their deathbed, or you're a Bedouin in the middle of the desert, and you literally have no water for miles and miles and miles around or something uh, like that. You're disabled. You can't go down in the water. There are these exceptions. Uh, Zach mentioned this last week. Uh, Sabbath is made for man and not man for Sabbath. So baptism is made for man and not man for uh, baptism. In other words, immersion is the only biblical option, but there could be exceptions in very, very rare extreme cases so we don't want to be overly dogmatic that that's the only way it can be done, but that is the only way it should be done, uh, barring some sort of uh, unforeseen, extenuating uh, circumstance that would make that impossible. Okay, that is who should be baptized and how should they be baptized. Zach's going to come up and ask some questions. Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, Jeffrey. Few questions. You guys asked more questions on this topic than you've ever asked on any topic. So the little thing back there was blown well up. So we will not get to half of those. Some of your questions we covered in the lesson last week. So like where does infant baptism come from? Who's the first person on record to do it? That was in the lesson last week. So uh, go listen to that. But Jeffrey, first of all, if uh, someone uh, was sprinkled as an infant, should they be rebaptized? That's a great question. So uh, here's how to answer that. I would say that you should never, ever, ever be rebaptized. The question is, were you baptized in the first place? All right. And so if what baptism is, if the meaning of the word baptism refers to the immersion of a believer, then if you were sprinkled as an infant, you weren't baptized. All right. Every time I jump into a swimming pool and go into the water, I don't say, I'm baptized again, right? I was baptized once. Every other time that I've ever gone under the water, I don't consider that baptism because baptism means something. It means the immersion of a believer. And so if that was not you, then you should not uh, consider it rebaptism. You should get baptized for the first time. Now, on the other hand, if you've already been baptized and you just feel like, man, now I'm so much more sanctified than I was 10 years ago or something like that, then you, you absolutely should not get rebaptized because you were already baptized in the first place. And so the question is always going to be, were you actually baptized? And in order to discern that, you want to ask the question, was I a, a believer whenever I experienced uh, whatever it was that I experienced. That's good. Uh, that goes with another question someone asked. If infant baptism is a tertiary issue and there's so much support for infant baptism, why do we ask people to be rebaptized? I'll just echo the same thing you said. Imagine that you're talking to a couple and they're living together. And I say, you guys should get married. 
and they say, why are you asking us to get remarried? I would say, no, I'm not asking you to be remarried. You're just living together. I'm asking you to actually be married for the first time. That's always what we're doing uh, with the infant baptism thing. We're never asking someone to be rebaptized. There's no such thing as rebaptism. We're asking them to be baptized for the first time. That's why a Baptist took on the name Baptist and not Anabaptist. Not rebaptizer, but rather just uh, baptizer. Okay. Can I, can I ask? Please. I would also Please, just Jeffrey. say, so in the question it said that uh, infant baptism has all of this, how, how was it phrased? Yeah, uh, and there's so much support for infant baptism. Yeah. I assume they're meaning in church history, not in yes. the Bible. Yeah, yeah. and that, that would be my only distinction. There's a whole lot of historical support. I would say there is zero theological biblical support. For infant baptism. And so hopefully you get that if you want to go back and listen to that um, uh, teaching on the covenantal sign of baptism from a year ago and then last week and then this week. Number three of 20. We won't do all of these. Uh, is it necessarily sinful if your view of baptism is wrong, if you're trying to be faithful to God? Okay. So I like the heart behind this question. Let me, let me address something and then I'll kick it to you. Um, God does not deem your actions sinful or not sinful just on whether or not you do it with a good heart. It also has to be the right action, right? So uh, a gay couple might love each other and say that they're trying to love each other with a good heart, trying to, the Bible wants us to promote love, so they're promoting love. The Bible does not want us doing the wrong action with the right heart. What the Bible wants us doing is right action and right heart. If you can't do that, your heart's not there, go ahead and do right action while you have bad heart, but what you cannot do is wrong action. Okay? So ideally, you want to have right heart and right action. If you're not there, your heart hasn't caught up, whatever it might be, do right action while you wait for your heart to catch up. But what you can't do is, uh, is wrong action. So I remember talking to a friend of mine who was a Christian who hadn't been baptized at all, and uh, I said to her, I was like, hey, you, you should be obedient to being baptized. And she said, no, I don't really feel convicted about that. And I'm like, I, I don't think this is a matter of how you feel in your heart and how your mind is deceiving you. Uh, but rather it's an objective command. And so I just want to re- remind everybody, this is one of the reasons we put such a big emphasis on theology. This is part of the way that you love God. God is not after you just having a good heart and doing things he hates. He's after you having a good heart and doing things he loves. You have to have both, the right heart and the right action. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I would just say, so we need to have a category in our mind. We've talked about this a number of times here. We actually, I think we have a blog on it. But there are degrees of sin. And, uh, and so uh, Jesus will talk about Judas is, greater, uh, is guilty of a greater sin than Pilate because Judas is the one who actually delivered him over. And so all sin actually condemns you before God, but there are some sins that are worse than others, right? And so if I th- look at someone with lust, in a sense that is like adultery, but it would be a lot worse uh, if I actually committed adultery, right? If I hate you in my heart, that is a sin. And in some sense, it's like murder. But if I actually murdered you, that would be a lot worse. And, uh, and so there are degrees of sin. And so I would say that uh, someone who is just refusing to be baptized, they have no desire for it whatsoever. Uh, they've not been sp- sprinkled as an infant, anything at all. I would say that is a worse sin. And then I would have under that a category of, of uh, someone who has heard this teaching, uh, who has uh, heard the sort of the strongest view for credo baptism and has just simply rejected it. And I would say that is under that uh, in regards to sin. So they were sprinkled as an infant, and they just simply reject credo-baptism. Uh, and, then, uh, and then under that, I would say there's, there are, uh, obviously there are millions of people who have lived who were sprinkled as infants, and they never actually heard a defense for credo-baptism because the entire uh, thrust of church history was uh, paid a baptist. And so I think that's a much lesser sin, but it's still a sin nonetheless. You're not doing what God has commanded. Now, it's a sin out of ignorance, and so again, I'm not saying that they're condemned, I'm not saying that they don't love and trust Jesus, any of those kinds of things, but it's still, there's no way around that implication if you don't obey a command that God has given that it is, to some degree, a sinful action. Number four, if the sign of the Messiah was given to believer and unbeliever in the Old Testament, should the signs be applied to believer and unbeliever today? That's a great question. I think the question itself answers it because it says, should the sign be applied? So let me tell you how this is different. In the Old Testament, the sign of circumcision is given to the Jews because from their descendants will come a Messiah. Does it matter whether or not they come to faith or not? No, right? Look at Jesus' genealogy in Matthew. There are a lot of scoundrels in that list. 
So you apply the sign of circumcision to Jewish boys and girls regardless of whether or not they come to faith. Faith is not a necessary thing to make that sign mean anything because the promise is not you're going to be saved if you're circumcised. The promise is, dear Jews, as you have kids and they have kids and they have kids, a Messiah will come. So whether or not you believe is irrelevant to whether or not you take on the sign. That is the opposite of how baptism is used in the New Testament. Baptism in the New Testament is not there's this hope that the Messiah might come, whether you have faith in him or not. It's that the Messiah has come, and there is no relationship with Christ that's not a saving relationship. Okay? In the Old Testament, you could be in covenant with God, generally, and not be saved. That does not exist in the New Testament. If you know Jesus, you have to fully know Jesus. It's not like you're in covenant with Christ, but you hate him, and you're not regenerate, and you're not a Christian, and all these other things. So what people forget is that these things symbolize different things. It wasn't circumcision symbolizes the people of God, and now baptism symbolizes the people of God. It was circumcision promises a physical Messiah from the lineage of Israel. Baptism is a sign that you have experienced spiritual rebirth, Jeremiah and Ezekiel-style spiritual rebirth. And so there's a fundamental discontinuity in what the sign is signifying. And so uh, that would be my kind of uh, initial thing there. You would apply the sign to believer and unbeliever in the Old Testament because the, the meaning of the promise was irrelevant to whether or not they believed. A Messiah was coming. Whether you were a good Jew or a bad Jew, you're, Jew, you're a Jew, and so you're going to have a Jewish Messiah come out of Israel eventually. In the New Testament, it's about a spiritual heart circumcision. It's the fulfillment of what circumcision was meant to be. Jeff, any other thoughts on that one? Yeah, so I think that uh, distinction between the physical and the spiritual is, uh, is important. Uh, in, uh, in Israel, how were you born into the covenant? Anybody? You're just born, right? Uh, and so if, if you wanted to enlarge Israel, what would you do? You would procreate. You would have more babies, right? Now, is that the primary way that the church grows? No, the, the primary way that the church grows is not by procreation, but, but through proclamation of the gospel. You're not born into the kingdom of God. You're not born into the church. You're not born into this new covenant reality of, uh, of being a Christian. You are reborn into it. And so there is a sense in which uh, both uh, uh, Old Testament Israel and uh, in the New Covenant Church that you are to apply the sign to infants. It's just simply we have a different understanding of what infancy is. In, uh, in the Old Covenant, you are a physical infant when you receive the sign. In the New Covenant community, you are a spiritual infant when you receive the sign. And, uh, and so that's the, that's the parallel that exists there. And so I think recognizing the difference between the very physica the physicality of the, the Old Covenant promises that it's to a particular ethnic people, whereas uh, the New Covenant reality is now uh, open to all people, and it's more of a spiritual reality. It promises spiritual things that will ultimately consummate in physical things, resurrection and new heavens and new earth and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so this is really important. In the Old Testament, you have shadows and physicality that are confirmed with these greater images in the New Testament. For example, you have a temple. Jesus is the greater temple. You have a priesthood. All Christians are priests today. You have Israel. It's the church that's called the Israel of God in Galatians. In every area in the Old Testament that's kind of this shadow, this symbol that's physical, there's this greater spiritual reality. Here's what Paedo-Baptists forget. The same is true of family. Okay? The way the New Testament, in the Old Testament, your family was your physical descendants. That's why you gave them the mark of circumcision. Those are not your family anymore in the New Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus has come to divide you from your physical family, to divide father and son and mother and daughter and these kind of things. The members uh, that you're at war with will be the members of your own household, and your new family is the church. And so what people do, and it, it's, it's frustrating, I was reading, a, again, we're not mad at any of you. We're mad at our heroes for being so good on everything but this issue, Okay. I was reading Hermann Bavink, who's an incredible Reformed theologian, and he's talking about all these symbols of how they find a greater fulfillment in Christ in the New Testament. I'm like, amen, amen, amen. And he leaves off family. He forgets the fact that we have a new definition of family in the New Testament. We no longer have the dividing wall of hostility because it's no longer an ethnic thing, but rather our new family is the church. I am closer to you in God's eyes if you're a Christian than I am to my own blood relatives that are not Christians, okay? Blood is thicker than water. But baptismal water is thicker than both, and so you need to keep that in mind. That's something the Pado-Baptist position forgets. They say, well, let's just apply the sign to our still physical family. No, no you, you've misdefined family. That's not how New Testament defines family, and so, uh, so keep that in mind. Let's do one more. Do Pado-Baptists give communion to their infants? Most Pado-Baptists do not. 
There are some traditions and some sects within paedo-baptism that do give communion to their infants. I actually think that if you're going to hold to the paedo-baptism position, you have to. You have to be consistent. You can't say this is a sign that it does not depend on the faith of the child. It's something God does. It's the faith of the redeemed community. But when it comes to this other sign, they have to have faith. Well, wait a second. If it's God's promise and it's not dependent upon faith, the children in Israel still ate of the Passover sacrifice, whether they understood it or not. And so I think you have to be consistent. If you're going to do infant baptism, I think you have to do infant communion. You can't, again, be inconsistent and just do one or the other. And so I would encourage you to do neither. Do believer's baptism and believer's communion be totally consistent, but uh, your other option is to do both. So, Jeffrey, any thoughts on that? Uh, just that we have a, if you're wondering, you know, why should you be baptized before you take communion, we have a blog on that. So check out the, the blog, the website. Jeff, pray for us, and then we will, we will do some Romans. Father, we thank you for uh, today. Thank you for your word. I thank you for um, the church and, uh, and for the gift that it is. And so I thank you for uh, all of the men and women who have uh, uh, fought for your name and uh, have proclaimed your name and have been faithful, uh, even where they might have been wrong on this particular issue. And, uh, and so I pray that you would uh, give us a passion for truth, but also a passion to be uh, charitable and to be gracious and, uh, and kind uh, with our uh, brothers and sisters who might err on this one uh, tertiary, third-level uh, sort of subject. And so, uh, Lord, we're grateful for the opportunity for us to gather this morning and uh, to celebrate your grace, to celebrate uh, the gift of motherhood, to, uh, to sit together under the proclamation of your word. And uh, so pray that you would prepare our hearts as we go forth from here and, uh, and sing and pray and listen to your word and hear it taught and encourage each other and all of those good things. And so we pray these things because you're a good father who gives good gifts, and so we pray in Christ's name. Amen.